for uh, sharing about um, ambivalent relationships. I know that is a pretty, actually a weighted conversation about a lot of things and not just the holidays. And, and it is tough because, you know, whether it be work or, you know, acquaintances, whatever you want to call it. Um, but one of the things that helps me avoid those kinds of relationships, period, is the weight that I actually put into, you know, or reliance on, on those others. You know, when it comes to work, I just do exactly what I can and only expect what I can. And if I leave it in somebody else's hands of whatever task they're doing, then it's, you know, I, I don't take offense to whether they fail, and I only take great appreciation for when they succeed. So um, considering I used to be just the opposite, you know, I'd get pissed off if someone backstabbed me, but that might help. Anyhow, have a great one. Hey, Jason, thanks for that call in. And yeah, ambivalent relationships at the workplace are, you know, or can be much more difficult to deal with because you don't have a choice for the most part, whether you get to interact with that person or not, because, well, you know, they're your coworker. And if you're on the same level, you, you know, you're just kind of stuck with them. So that is, that's a great way to deal with them. If, if it works out great, great. If it doesn't, well, it doesn't. And I guess the whole point there is just not to invest a lot of emotional currency or mental currency into that person, you know, enough that you're getting your job done, but not enough that it's wearing you down. So yeah, great input. And thanks again for the call. Hi there, good morning. This is Dr. Get a Headspace here from the Wellbeings podcast. Um, this is a call into working to the working like a woman station. Um, I just wanted to thank you so very much for your call ins, and um, please know I haven't been complacent in responding. Um, it's just, I've, I've had various technical issues, let's say, and, um, and then at the same time, um, I do want to do a thoughtful response, but, um, I just really wanted to touch base with you, um, wish you compliments of the season, and also I really, really liked your episode on Frenemies. Bye-bye. Thank you, Dr. Gata Headspace, for that call in. And hey, you know, call in when you can. I'll call into your station when I can. We're, you know, we've all got a life to live and we're sharing our experiences out here. And when we can cross share, that's just awesome. So I'm glad you're enjoying the segments and I hope your technical difficulties come together. And happy holidays to you and to your parents. Anxiety is a normal part of life. You might feel anxious when you have a big test or a meeting with your boss or when you don't have enough money to pay the bills in your bank account. But when anxiety goes beyond just a temporary fear or worry, when it starts to impact your life, your work, your relationships, or even your health, that's when it becomes a serious concern. If you have anxiety, you feel it. The list of physical issues sounds like the end of a Cialis ad. If you're taking anxiety, symptoms may include chest pain, muscle tension, headaches, stomach aches, nausea, heart palpitations, restlessness, dizziness, problems sleeping, hot flashes, chills, a whole bunch of other things, and 
death. <laughs> I'm just kidding about that last one. Chronic anxiety can be really bad for your long-term health, too. It's been linked to things like heart attacks and suppressed immune system. And that doesn't even address what's going on in your head. Anxiety disorders often have cognitive distortions. Cognitive distortions are irrational thoughts or beliefs about ourselves or the world around us. Basically, it's a fancy word for worries. Examples of this might include things like all-or-nothing thinking, If I don't get done everything on my to-do list today, I'm going to be a total failure. And catastrophizing. Oh no, I can't believe I made a typo in that email. They must think I'm an idiot. These cognitive distortions can have serious impacts on behavior as well, affecting a person's day-to-day -day life, how they interact with friends, or how they manage their job. Without treatment, anxiety symptoms tend to become more severe and frequent over time. But don't fret, help is out there. Contrary to popular belief, an anxiety disorder isn't something you can just snap out of or ignore. It also isn't a sign of personal weakness or someone who's unstable. Anxiety disorders can affect anyone. This stigma against anxiety disorders keeps people from seeking help. Only one third of people suffering from anxiety get treatment. And people who believe that anxiety is a choice are even less likely to get help when they actually need it. So. How do anxiety disorders come about, and who's at risk? Well, there's a popular way of thinking about anxiety called the threshold model. Imagine for a moment a graph with a normal distribution curve. The y-axis is the number of people in your population, and the x-axis is the predisposition to anxiety. In the general American population, about 20% of people have a current anxiety disorder. That means that people whose anxiety level crosses the threshold in this upper 20% will likely experience an anxiety disorder. This threshold can also change based on how you change the population. For example, anxiety seems somewhat hereditary. So, if the population is people who have parents with anxiety disorders, that threshold goes up to 30%. Or if the population is individuals who have experienced a traumatic event, such as mass violence, that threshold goes up to 67%. As you can see, there's a lot of factors that can change the threshold. So, on an individual basis, depending on genetic predisposition, environment, and life experiences, the threshold will change. Okay, so let's say you think you might have anxiety and you'd like to get some help. Now what? The first step is setting up a meeting with a psychiatrist, psychologist, or counselor. You can discuss your thoughts and symptoms with them and they'll determine your diagnosis. Then they'll help you understand it and work with you on coping with your anxiety. There are a lot of ways to treat anxiety. Typically, the combination of medication and talk therapy is considered the most effective treatment. Allie talked about different medications, but today I'm focusing on the therapy side of things. Honestly, there's a lot of different therapies that could be helpful for treating anxiety, but there is one that stands head and shoulders above the rest with more than 30 years of compelling empirical data. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, or CBT. CBT focuses on what and how a person thinks or acts, more than why a person thinks or acts that way. To boil it all down, CBT has two goals. First, there's cognitive restructuring, which involves the therapist and client working together to change thinking patterns. For example, treatment may focus on changing cognitive distortions. If the person is able to recognize irrational thoughts and change them, they will be more able to reduce their anxiety in the future. The second goal is behavioral activation, which involves clients learning to overcome obstacles to participate in enjoyable activities. For example, exposure therapy involves exposing a person to their fear without any actual danger. If a person is scared of snakes, for example, you might have a non-venomous snake in an enclosed tank across the room. The therapist then helps the client through what they're feeling. Eventually, when they become desensitized to the fear and feel more comfortable, the therapist moves the tank a little closer until the client's anxiety returns, 
and then they repeat the process. But how effective is this? Well, for specific phobias like fear of sharks or string beans, individuals can see an 80% improvement in symptoms with as little as two to nine hours of cognitive behavioral treatment. In panic disorder, patients see about 60 to 93% improvement in symptoms, depending on their length of therapy. Patients with social anxiety disorder and most forms of PTSD also see significant long-term improvement when using exposure and social skills training. Overall, CBT's effectiveness is huge. At home, on your own, there are a lot of coping skills that help reduce anxiety, mostly lots of things that are good for your self-care. These include building strong relationships, getting lots of sleep, exercise, eating well, doing fun activities, and meditation. If you'd like to try reducing your anxiety at home, click in the upper right corner for a guided cognitive behavioral technique that relaxes your body and, as a result, your mind. Anxiety is no joke. If you think that you, a friend, or a family member is suffering from an anxiety disorder, take a look in the description for more resources in your area. Help is out there and you're not alone, so don't wait. Thanks for watching this episode of Micah Psych. If you like this episode, give me a thumbs up and hit subscribe if you'd like to catch more videos about brain diseases and disorders in the future. Make sure you head over and check out Allie's video about the neuroscience of anxiety. If you love us as much as we love you, consider supporting us on Patreon. We really couldn't do all of this without your support and we really appreciate it. Tweet me if you wanna talk about anxiety or treatment or therapy. And if you'd like to learn about a particular condition, let us know in the comments below. Until next time, I'm Micah. Think about it. Hey there, Brainiacs. I'm Allie Astrocyte, and you're watching Neurotransmissions. As most of you probably know, I'm a graduate student. I'm working on getting my PhD in neuroscience. I love my research. Getting to study astrocytes every day is totally awesome. So even though grad school can be stressful sometimes, I love what I do. Not all stress is bad. Stress is actually an important physical response that helps keep us sharp. Short-term stress can help improve our alertness and memory. It also motivates us on a daily basis. But as I've learned, sometimes stress isn't just stress. When stress goes from being a motivator to being totally overwhelming, that's not normal. A couple years ago, I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. Generalized anxiety disorder is described by the Anxiety and Depression Association of America as persistent, excessive, and unrealistic worry about everyday things. Basically, I was worried all the time about everything. Getting a diagnosis from a psychologist was the first step to finding a treatment plan that works for me, something I'm still navigating every day. And since I'm a neuroscientist, I got curious about what anxiety meant for my brain. Anxiety disorders include not only generalized anxiety disorder, but also other conditions like social anxiety disorder, PTSD, and panic disorder. The National Institute of Mental Health says that anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the United States, affecting nearly one in five adults. So it's pretty important for us to figure out how these disorders work and how to treat them effectively. Just like how the occipital lobe handles vision and the temporal lobe processes sounds, our emotional responses have their own brain regions. The limbic system is a complex set of structures deep inside the brain that includes the hippocampus, amygdala, hypothalamus, and thalamus. 
This circuit is believed to handle most of our emotional processing, and the prefrontal cortex is responsible for integrating this emotional information into our decision making. Scientists think that anxiety disorders pop up when there are changes in the signaling of the limbic system. Of course, we can't go digging around in living people's brains to see how their neurons are firing. But scientists can study this theory using non-invasive imaging techniques, like fMRI and PET scans. This kind of research has found that patients with anxiety disorders have more activity than normal in the limbic system. Importantly, there's a trend for these patients to have hyperactive amygdalas, which is interesting because the amygdala is sometimes considered the fear center of the brain. Each disorder has its own quirks, too. In panic disorder, the amygdala hyperactivity might be caused by less GABA, the main inhibitory neurotransmitter, in some areas of the brain. This could lead to less inhibitory signaling in the emotion circuits, making it harder to control panicky feelings. Patients with generalized anxiety disorder also seem to have larger amygdalas than controls. So maybe their brains have more machinery to process fear information, which then reacts more strongly to negative emotional stimuli. PTSD, on the other hand, might be a result of too much excitatory signaling in the hippocampus and amygdala, leading to intense emotional reactions to triggering stimuli. PTSD might be partially caused by our logical brain regions being forced to process emotional information, giving our brain a harder time controlling those thoughts. In social anxiety disorder, being exposed to images of faces leads to extra activity in the amygdala. So people who are anxious in social situations are processing social information through a layer of fear, making those environments stressful for them. Like in PTSD, this might be a result of excessive excitatory signaling in the limbic system. Researchers are still working out a lot of the details on how differences in the brain lead to these conditions. The limbic system has a lot of parts, and there's a lot of variation in the symptoms and severity of each of these disorders, so it can be hard to pick apart the details. For me, anxiety felt like having my stress dial cranked up to 11 all the time. These go to 11. I had trouble sleeping and felt like I was never on top of my to-do list. It actually took me a really long time to admit that how I felt wasn't just normal grad school stress. And it wasn't until I started getting treatment that I realized just how bad I actually felt. So, how do we treat anxiety disorders? I've personally found a combination of cognitive behavioral therapy, usually called CBT for short, and medication to work the best for me. Micah is going to talk about the psychological causes of anxiety and how therapies like CBT are used to treat it in a separate video. Medication can be helpful for some patients too. The most common drugs prescribed for anxiety disorders are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, which are also commonly prescribed for depression. SSRIs function by inhibiting the reuptake of serotonin, a neurotransmitter. In the brain, serotonin is known to be involved in mood, sleep, and appetite regulation. SSRIs block neurons from reabsorbing serotonin after it's released, leaving it lingering in the synapse where it can repeatedly stimulate the receiving neuron and push the neighboring neurons to adjust their serotonin signaling. SSRIs are used for long-term anxiety management. It takes them a while to have an effect, and they help keep moods balanced. It's not totally clear how SSRIs help with anxiety disorders. It's not even totally clear how they work, but they do seem to help. Alternatives to SSRIs are serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, or SNRIs. They have 
very similar effects. But instead of just blocking the reuptake of serotonin, SNRIs block absorption of serotonin and norepinephrine, also called noradrenaline. This neurotransmitter is linked to alertness, attention, and action readiness. Which medication a patient uses depends on their preferences, and it can take a couple of tries to find the right choice. When patients are dealing with an acute crisis, like a panic attack, short-term, fast-acting medications like benzodiazepines may be more practical. These drugs have a sedative effect and act as muscle relaxants. Unlike SSRIs and SNRIs, benzodiazepines are considered addictive because of their immediate relaxing effect and can be easily abused. However it's treated, there are a lot of options out there for people dealing with anxiety disorders. Getting treatment has really changed my life for the better, and I am really grateful that scientists and doctors have spent so much time and effort trying to understand these conditions so that people like me can get the help that we need. Thanks for watching this episode of Neurotransmissions. If you liked it, please give it a thumbs up and hit subscribe to catch more videos about brain diseases and disorders in the future. If you're really excited to see more videos like this, consider supporting us on Patreon. We couldn't do all of this without your support. You can find me on Twitter at Allie underscore Astrocyte if you'd like to know more about my own experience with anxiety. And if you'd like to learn about a particular condition, let us know in the comments. Until our next transmission, I'm Allie Astrocyte, over and out. Regardless of who you voted for in November, a new study suggests that politics may be stressing you out. In fact, according to the American Psychological Association, we're more stressed out now than we were before the election. So why are you so stressed out by politics? We care. People care about what's going on in the world. I'm better off not thinking about it. It's that bad. All I'm seeing is oh, Russia, emails, everything. Everything's clogged up. Fear of, um what's to come is what's stressing everybody out. Everything is just crazy. It's, it's, it's out of control. And according to the new research, this stress crosses party lines. And from Obama to, I don't, I don't know, uh, to Trump. Some of these liberals, are they go a little too far with social justice warriors and all that stuff. I can't handle that. Now all this anxiety is to be expected, says clinical psychologist Dr. Jeff Latousig Edwards. It's the uncertainty that everyone seems to be experiencing right now with the constant shift in policies and politics and who's getting confirmed and who isn't and that really makes people feel very anxious. But Dr. Jeff says there are solutions tailor-made to your personal experience of the status quo. Don't allow yourself to be bombarded by the 24-hour news cycle if you can help it. Try to limit your viewing to those programs that you find are helpful and then take a break if you need to. For some people though, it's more stressful not to take action. And for those individuals, it might make more sense to get more active, to get even more involved than you may have been, so that you have a sense of agency. And if all else fails, just remember to keep calm and carry on. Baruch Shemtov, Fox News. So I had to listen to your, uh, your cast about um this different civilizations and I was listening also um, to what they were talking about and I don't think we're at zero uh, theoretically I mean if you really think about it mankind like ants are a, a colony and they just rapidly reproduce but yet they organize them their colonies 
and their organization of living into structures for a purpose in which we do not understand or cannot comprehend, so, so to speak, at least in, in, in my mind. Um, I was just talking about something similar of this subject matter, um, and I was thinking about this, what if we're all just designing, designed machines and giving with some kind of free will? So, I don't know, that's just kind of like my opinion. Um, I, I would like to continue uh, listening though. This is my uh, second call in on another post about your health care. Um, you know, to answer your question, think of it like the game of Monopoly. Um, nowhere on the, else in the world is healthcare monopolized like it is in the United States and to make money. And the reason why is because healthcare here is a cash cow. It's just a reality. And unfortunately, the real ailments that we really suffer from can be treated by so many different ways because modern American medicine is actually way behind international medicine. Um, our doctors have stopped being scientists and more like drug dealers. They prescribe more things without looking into and how to diffuse ailments. So my answer to your, your post is look at remedies other than modern American medicine. Hey Jason, thanks for that call in on the Kardashev scale. And for all of you who didn't hear that piece, I'm going to replay that piece uh, right after Jason's next call in so you can hear what he has to say. And I'd love to hear some other people's um, take on that. But I think the point, um, you know, the point of the Kardashev scale is to not grade, like not grade us right now, but to encourage us to move forward and to be better and to get the heck off of this planet and get out there. Because if we stay here, you know, we're, we're history, we're done. So I think zero is appropriate. And, uh, you know, it, and we're not quite zero, right? We're, you know, we're getting really close to level one, but we really do need to get beyond this planet or humanity just isn't going to survive. And your take on the we're just machines. Well, I know, I guess that's kind of like a take on the matrix thing, right? There's a there's a bunch of Silicon Valley, like CEOs and stuff that think we're all part of this big matrix. And I don't know if it's Elon Musk, I think it might be Elon Musk who buys into that theory, too. You know, I don't know, I'm a computer scientist. So yeah, I could see it. I, I could totally see us um, as part of a giant matrix and you know we're just all kind of pawns in this this big program that's running but uh well i guess if that's the case then what do we care about the kardashev scale right yeah but assuming that we're not um yeah we we need to broaden our horizons we just need to get off this planet hey jason so um thanks again for your call in on the healthcare piece and i will replay that piece as well for those of you who haven't heard it. Now, I totally agree with you on the fact that the doctors we have here have pretty much stopped. Well, I mean, there's no funding for science here, right? So 
there's no, there's not a lot, I don't want to say no, but there's not a lot of studies being done. There's not a whole lot of advancement being done. And they've really just become drug pushers. You know, I, I've got some MDs in my family and I know what happens. You know, the drug reps come in, they give them all kinds of perks for prescribing different medications and you know, they get free golf golf trips and you know, whatever else they want, free dinners, all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's really, um, you know, it's bad news. It's really bad news. And if we went to a universal healthcare system, we would have to get off of this uh, commercializing of drugs and, you know, the big money made by the, the big pharma companies and yeah, that's all so corrupt, and it needs to go away, and it needs to go away fast. We need to take all that money that's going into the pockets of these big companies and fund real research into real solutions to real problems. Healthcare, physical healthcare, emotional healthcare, all of that. There's a lot of money around this country. There's a lot of money to be had. It's just being allocated and given to the wrong places. There's been some discussion over on Z Station about uh, the, the Kardashev scale and, you know, where, where should we be or wh why are we at zero? To me, it makes perfect sense that we would start now at zero or, you know, 0.73 or whatever that that uh, video said, because we're only just beginning. What, what have we done that is so great? We haven't even, we haven't left the planet yet. So we have to start at zero. This is just the beginning. And if we don't do anything, well, we're just big fat zeros anyway. So Zero makes perfect sense. I mean, really, this should serve as some incentive for us to get out there and start learning our science. How many people do you know who know anything about science? Why is it lost to us? Why are we going backwards? Come on, people, wake up, learn your science, advance, support the sciences. I bet you know an awful lot about Kim Kardashian. What do you know about science? Come on. I know a lot of listeners out there are not in the United States, and a lot of you have health care universally for everyone. And, I, you know, I'm quite sure none of you take it for granted, but we don't have, I'm sure you're well aware, we don't have it here. And to get to the point where we can worry about our emotional needs and don't get me wrong that is extremely important but to get to the point where we are concerned about our emotional and our um you know our emotional well-being or our mental well-being we don't even have access to basic physical health care and you know a lot of health care comes with um you know mental health care as well and we don't have access to that either 
It is a serious problem in this country and serious problem elsewhere in the in the world, of course, but what is it? Why can we not just have basic access to healthcare for everyone so we can move beyond this fundamental human need and move on to the next step. We aren't going to get anywhere until we have basic access to basic things. I mean, how can anyone imagine that people in this country are going to act emotionally, mentally stable when they don't have access to any help physically, mentally, nothing. It is insane and it is not the least bit surprising that we have so many issues. Okay, you want to go beyond healthcare? Oh, let's go to education. The education system in this country is terrible. And now they're taking away tax benefits to go to graduate school. You know, no one can afford to go to college anymore. Why is, at least the first two years, why is it not free? Come on, where are our priorities here? We need access to basic health care. We need access to education. And everyone needs to have some money to live. If you are not fortunate enough to have a job or you're not mentally stable enough to have a job, you still are a human and you still need to be able to live like a human being. We have a huge homeless problem in this country. You know, hearing these stories, I keep saying, that's it, we're moving to Europe. We're moving to Canada. But, you know, I don't want to run away from the problem. But what can we do? What can we do here as just, uh, as just a citizen? What can we do? Something needs to be done. Hello, hello, this is Sherman DeSalle um, calling in, letting you know that I enjoyed listening to your discussion on ambivalent relationships. You know, something I realized, um, the older that we get, the less time we have for things like that. I've come to realize in my 30s just how small my friend circle is, um, because you want genuity and you want sincerity and people who really care about you and your well-being. In the 20s, you know, you're thinking, oh, I want my friend circle to be huge and vast, but man, isn't it funny how life changes things? Either way, um, looking forward to hearing more on your station. Keep it up. Hey, Sherman. Thanks for that call in. I totally agree. When I was in my, I mean, you know, it, it, it gets, your friend circle gets smaller and smaller and you care more about the quality of those friendships. I mean, just think when you were in elementary school, you wanted a lot of friends and you didn't care who they were or what they were. You just wanted a lot of friends. 
then you you know you get into middle school and high school and you you're looking for a little more of a connection but you still got to be like you know you got to have a lot of friends to be popular and that type of thing and then you go to college or you know you move beyond high school and yeah the friend circle might get a little smaller but it's still all about how many friends you have and then in your 20s, when you're first starting work, again, you want to be, you know, more of the popular person at work or whatever it is. And, you know, you're really concerned about um, quantity versus quality. But yeah, as you get into your 30s and then your 40s and, you know, beyond that, all that really you, you realize that really what matters is the quality of the friendship and the the value that they have to you and the value that you have to them. Yeah, I really liked that piece on the, the different types of friends and um, the ambivalent relationships and ambivalent, ambivalent friendships and really what to watch out for and how to protect yourself and how to not hurt other people as well. Thanks for that call in. Hi, working like a woman. I wanted to give a call in and say thank you for favoriting my station. I definitely appreciate it. Also wanted to wish you a happy holidays and a joyous new year. Uh, I just listened to your broadcast regarding multitasking and yeah, I'd have to say I am probably a little bit of both a multitasker and a linear tasker depends on i guess the task or tasks that i'm trying to accomplish but i definitely like you said um kind of feel like i have trouble delegating at times and maybe taking on a little bit too much or more than i would have to um you know, and it's kind of making my multitasking a little bit less efficient than it could be. So that's actually something that I'm going to be working on in the new year. But yeah, great broadcast. And yeah, thanks again. And again, happy holidays. Thank you for that call in. And that's also what I'm going to be working on in the new year. Now that I have all this information about multitasking and how detrimental it really is to you. I mean, I, like I said earlier, I, I knew that I was tired. I knew that I was done when I had a nice solid day of doing, you know, what I was calling multitasking. And now I know why. And I'm going to work on not focusing on multitasking so much. I'm going to work on trying to focus on a task and focus hard on that task and really put the mental energy that that task deserves towards that one task. Now I know life goes on and yeah, I'm probably going to have to deal with other things and at work, yes, it's very interrupt driven and I might be focused, but oh, this person needs some help over there, so I got to stop and go over there. But I just need to be more aware and realize what it's doing to me. And I'm going to put a big effort towards this, and I hope I really do see some improvement in my energy levels after work. So thanks again for that call in.
So before the call-ins, I posted some segments about anxiety, and then I posted a segment from Fox News. Now, I am I'm not a Fox News watcher, but I, you know, as I'm researching different anxiety issues, I came across that segment, and I found it very interesting. And I did see a headline this morning that said, you know, exactly what that um, news article said, was that Americans are more stressed out in 2017 than they have been since World War II. Now, of course, they're blaming this on our current, um, you know, our current presidency and the lack of science funding and all the talk of global warming and all the talk of nuclear war with North Korea, all the social unrest that we have in this country. It's, uh, there's a lot to be worried about. Not to mention all the stresses that you have just simply in your daily life. I found it interesting at the end of that news article how the the woman that they were interviewing, she said there's basically um, two types of people, or you know the two two ways that people deal with their stresses, their anxiety, and she said some people need to just back off and basically uh, you know put their head in the sand and pretend like it's not happening, and the other group feels better going out and doing something about it. You get more anxious when you feel like you can't do anything about it. And I'm sure there's a big majority of us that, depending on the day or depending on the mood or how stressful that day was, you know that changes. Now, I certainly hope for the good of our world that there are more of us who feel better going out and taking a stand and doing something about the problem instead of just simply hiding our heads in the sand. If you have something that you're passionate about and there's something that you know needs to change or you know is wrong, speak up. Don't be afraid to say something. Take control. Take charge. Take control of the anxiety you feel about it. Go out and do something about it. I mean, even just talking about on Anchor, all of our voices make a difference. Of course I can multitask. I'm multitasking right now. I'm looking after the children. I'm washing the dishes. I'm creating a to-do list for tomorrow. I am far more productive and thus better off. Who said I can't multitask? Truth be told, dear viewer, science. Science says you can't multitask. Multitasking itself is an illusion to begin with. What you're never doing is two things simultaneously. You're actually switching between two things so quick it gives the impression of simultaneousness. Many, many, many research projects have gone into multitasking from many different universities around the world. Stanford University conducted a study to show that multitasking is less productive than doing one task at a time. They showed that if people are bombarded with information from multiple sources, then they tend to have trouble paying attention, recalling information, and focusing after switching tasks. 
Then the worst effect is, they found that the area of the brain that grades your work is affected, causing you to give a higher grade than your work is actually worth, so you believe your work is great when really it's actually subpar. The problem lies in the fact that your brain splits when there's more than one thing to be done. Your prefrontal cortex, that spans both sides of the brain, is part of the brain's motivational system. When one task presents itself, both sides can work in sync to achieve the goal. However, they will work independently if more than one problem arises. As my French is frankly terrible, I will use the acronym for the Paris University, INSERM. Basically, they did an experiment with people under an fMRI scan. They found that offering a larger reward for completing one of the two tasks accurately, only one side of the prefrontal cortex actually increased its activity. It was the same for either side. Now when they were told to complete three tasks at the same time, participants not only forgot about the third one completely, they made three times more errors than the ones that they were actually doing. This was narrowed down to the idea that you only actually have two prefrontal lobes so you can only concentrate on two things maximum. The University of London then jumped on the bandwagon with a study about multitasking and your IQ. It showed that people who are multitasking had the same effect as someone who was staying up all night or was high on drugs when doing their work. Then they showed it can result in an IQ drop by up to 15 points and some of the participants even lowered their IQ to that of an average 8 year old. The University of Sussex then conducted a study to show how multitasking affects the structure of your brain. Maybe it was a skill that needs practicing and then you'll get better until you are more productive and efficient. What they found is that the effects of multitasking led to a lower brain density in the anterior cingulate cortex, which is the area responsible for emotional control and empathy. This is the area that governs your EQ, basically your emotional intelligence. Now companies like to test your EQ, as people with high emotional intelligence tend to do better in life, i.e. they're more successful at work with family and friends. So if your brain density is decreasing, it makes your anterior cingulate cortex smaller and therefore perform less effectively, lowering your emotional intelligence. However, it's not all doom and gloom. There are studies that say you can be trained to do two things at the same time. A study published in Psychology Science in December 2014 was all about training the brain to multitask. The paper claimed that it was all about how you were taught in the first place and the context of the information. The example HBI used was of divers learning vocabulary underwater and then performing better at recalling them underwater than they did on land. So if you were to learn the information while multitasking, it says that you would become more accustomed to it as long as the two activities were linked. Multitasking was even brought into the battle of the sexes. According to a paper in BMC Psychology, women do perform better at multitasking than men do, but only in certain situations. The University of Glasgow came in here with the fact that if men really are slower than women at processing information, then some serious restructuring of workplaces needs to go on. However, every time there is a study, there is widely different results. A study in China said that women are better, a study in Sweden said that men are better. All this confusion can only lead to the fact that we don't actually know who is better. In the end, the only advice I can give to you is to avoid multitasking. The evidence against far outweighs the evidence for. Possible brain damage and inaccuracies doesn't sound too appealing. You are not a computer, you do not have several brains which you can divide the task between. You have the one and you need to look after it. But till next time, stay smart.
even though our brains reward this kind of behavior, even though they make us crave information, they're actually not very good at processing information with the intensity and the quantity and the speed we find ourselves surrounded by today. And the reason is that our short-term working memory has a very small capacity. Working memory is essentially the contents of your consciousness at any given moment. What you're aware of is in your working memory. What you're not aware of is not in your working memory. And you probably remember at least the title of a famous paper uh, that came out, I think, in the 1950s. It was called, I think, The Magical Number 7. Uh, and the author of it said that it looked like we could hold in our working memory and our consciousness around seven pieces of information at once. And that was the maximum. And the thrust of his paper was, you know, this is a very small store of information. And since then, we found that actually that's an overstatement, that our working memory probably can only hold somewhere between two and four pieces of information at any given time. And when we take in too much information at once, what happens inevitably is that we, we start having this, this phenomenon where things are coming into and out of our working memory, out, into and out of our consciousness, really, really quickly. Because as soon as you take in a new bit of information uh, through whatever screen you happen to be looking at, uh, some other piece of information in your working memory has to leave, has to exit in order to make room for the new piece of information. And when this happens, and, and psychologists, particularly educational psychologists, have been studying this, particularly at this phenomenon, particularly as it relates to education for a long time, is you suffer, quite literally, cognitive overload. You're overloading your mind. You're overloading your working memory. And when that happens, you're never paying close attention to anything. You're never focusing on one thing for an extended period of time. And unfortunately, there are all sorts of important intellectual processes that as a result, get short-circuited. They never happen because they require us not to take in constant information, but to filter out information and to focus on one thing. Turns out that multitasking is a myth. We think that we're doing a whole bunch of things at once. But we're not, actually, because the brain doesn't work that way. And a number of studies now have shown, uh, from Earl Miller's lab at MIT and others, that what we're really doing is we're paying attention to one thing for a little bit of time, and then another, and then another, and then we come back around to the first. And all of these are separate projects that are occurring in separate parts of the brain. They require a separate start time, a separate monitoring process. And you end up fractionating your attention into little bits and pieces not really engaging fully in any one thing. All that switching across tasks comes with a neurobiological cost. It depletes resources. So after an hour or two of attempting to multitask, if we find that we're tired and we can't focus, it's because those very neurochemicals we needed to focus are now gone. There are some jobs that require not multitasking because we know it doesn't exist, but this kind of rapid switching. Uh, I'm air traffic controller simultaneous translator at the UN, uh, journalists, uh, you know, monitoring all these different things at once. And we can take a tip from the air traffic controllers who, uh, as part of their uh, duty cycle, are required after every hour and a half or two hours of work, it's mandated that they take a 15 to 30 minute break. 
And that means an unplugged, disconnected break where they go for a walk or uh, they listen to music, they exercise, something to restore all of the, uh, the burned up neurochemicals. You might ask during uh, this period of our evolution when there's all this information, is the brain adapting and changing? And yes, it is. The brain adapts and changes all the time. Evolution is happening all the time. Unfortunately, it's rather sluggish. We talk about it in terms of evolutionary lag. And generally speaking, it takes about 20,000 years for the brain to catch up with the way the environment is and at, in terms of how it's encoded in the genome. So uh, 20,000 years from now, our brains may have evolved to deal with it. In the meantime, we have to employ strategies, just a little bit more self-discipline than we currently use, to uh, filter out unwanted or unnecessary input. I'm not talking about never letting something frivolous or fun in, but I'm talking about adopting a, a kind of a habit of allowing yourself to focus on one thing at a time for at least a few hours a day. I'd like to talk about multitasking. Multitasking is not easy to do, and it can get a bit confusing. It seems like there's two types of people. I'm sure there's a lot more hybrids out there, but really there's people who can multitask, or some people call it circular thinking. And then there's people who are linear thinkers, and they're going to do one thing, and they're going to do it until it's done, and then they can move on to the next task. I am definitely a multitasker, and I don't think I could accomplish everything that I need to accomplish if I weren't a multitasker. Now, I'm sure there's definitely benefits to operating in, in either manner, linear tasking or multitasking. And maybe it's just what you're used to. I, I have several things, many dozens of projects going at the same time. And within those projects, each project has multiple tasks going at the same time. I'm not always good at, you know, farming out the, or delegating the different tasks to other people. I guess I, I don't think I'm really a micromanager, but I, I, I do like to make sure that things are done properly in the end, because it does come back to bite you, of course, if it wasn't. Multitasking doesn't have to be only work-related also. Here's an example. I can sit at my home desk and answer emails, you know, whether it's work or emails or personal emails, um, while having a full-on conversation with one of my kids or with my husband. And there might be a few pauses, but it, you know, I can do both at once. Now, my husband, he is, he, you know, he's in, and I fully appreciate everything that he does. He is a linear thinker. So when he's answering emails, you know not to interrupt him. Or when he's, you know, working on a project, you just wait till he's finished. And I respect that. And I understand both sides. And I'm really curious who out there Who's, who's the linear tasker? Who's the multitasker? What do you see as the benefits of both? I just don't think I have enough time in the day to be linear. I, I wouldn't have time 
to interact or, 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 well, I mean, I would certainly, if I had to choose, I would choose the interaction with my children or my husband over anything else. So I guess a better way to say it is I wouldn't have time to, to get any work tasks done if I couldn't multitask. So yeah, there's definitely priorities there. So let me know. Let me know what you think. I, I, I need to think more on this subject, but it's something I've been thinking about all morning as I'm working and you know, doing other personal things and yeah, all at the same time. Love to hear from you. Whoa. Now, I, I, today I was listening to, to Sentient Future, and he had a segment on attention and multitasking, which I um, published on the station. And then I went back because I knew I had done a segment on multitasking at one point. So I went back and I reposted the segment that I had done. And then I posted these three um, segments that I found about multitasking. And wow, it's a myth. I mean, yeah, I, I guess that you know, common sense says that you can't actually do two things at once. Your attention is here, then it's here, then it's here, then it's here. And if you bounce fast enough, I guess it can give the illusion that you're doing two, three, four, five, six, however many things at one time, but you're not, you know, your attention is here and then it's here and then it's here and then, oh, it's back here and then it's here and then it's here. And that refers to that circular thinking that I was talking about in a much earlier segment. But I didn't realize what, um, you know, how badly it is for your brain and for your mental capacity and uh, how much energy it takes. Now, if I had stopped to think about it, you know, I guess I thought, well, I just had a really busy day, so I'm tired. But on days where I was excessively doing this, um, you know, what we commonly refer to as multitasking, but really isn't this switching of attention from one thing to the next. I am beat and it's hard to uh, hold a good conversation. It's hard to do anything. And it is those days where I like, I need a break between work and getting home. I need to stop and like, you know, get some groceries or I need to stop and go to the gym or need to stop and take a yoga class or, you know, whatever it is that you do to get that little break. It's that restorative feeling, you know, that you, you, you need to get your brain faculties again. But hearing this information and uh, listening to these studies that were done, it points to the fact that you really shouldn't do this. Now, I know we can't always control what's going on and sometimes at work. Well, you know, we do need to focus on a couple things at once. But we should really try to limit that because it's very detrimental to our health and um, you know, the one study pointed to the fact that it actually lowers your IQ. Now, hmm, is that permanent? Unlikely, but probably at that moment or for that day, your IQ is lowered and you really need to, uh, you know, find some quiet time to bring it back up, to bring you back to normal. 
But this is seriously going to impact the way that I, uh, you know, I treat the tasks at hand. Especially as I get older, it's, uh, you know, I need all those IQ points. <laughs> I don't want to lose any more than I have. So uh, everyone out there, listen to those those uh, studies I just posted, you know, the segments that reference the studies. And it's really important. It's good stuff to know. Hey, working like a woman, it's Laura Explorer. It's rare and in life in general to find people that you can listen to, that you can relate to. I look forward to calling into your station soon when I have guts to actually talk about some stuff. Uh, you brought up a lot of great topics, so I'm really intrigued and I love the, the people that are calling into your station. So this is great and please keep up this great work and I look forward to the next one. Hello Working Like a Woman, this is D-Souls Production. I was listening to your content I was like wow, uh, I love the content about the healthcare and repeating history. Keep going down the same road and getting the same results. You know what the definition of that is, insanity. Hey Ronnie, it's Gigi from Bright Beautiful Worlds. Ever since you called into my station, I've been racking my brains about what I could share. Working like a woman. That's cool, that is really cool. Peace, love, and light. Hi there, it's Dr. Get A Headspace here. Here's a message from Ronnie from Working Like A Woman. Um, your last call-in uh, really, really touched me. It it really did. And um, of course, I'm more than happy to um, now and again, you know, call in and and, and give out of, of my stories for days. Um, but also, you know, I, I just look forward to hearing your content. I feel like I'm stalking you and your husband, but more, you guys are really um, Fermians and Bozons. Oh my. I mean, I'm learning all kinds of new stuff and I appreciate it. And I mean that sincerely. Yeah, it's it's groovy what you guys are doing. I, I was always that nice drunk when I was a drinker. Okay, thanks so much. And thanks for teaching me all kinds of new stuff today, you guys. I appreciate it, sincerely. Ronnie, working like a woman. I love your page and all the content that you put out. Um, it's a very empowerful woman. Good morning, working like a woman. Ronnie, hi, Barbara KB calling in. Well, I'm so glad you're starting this station here where women come and share their stories and discussing. This is very nice. There are a number of really strong, powerful women here at Anchor, and we discuss and talk amongst ourselves. So thanks for putting a station together um, to do that. Um, and thanks for calling in and, and asking me to share my story. Oh, my story as a woman, where to begin? 
Hello, uh, Working Like a Woman. This is D-Souls Productions, LLC Legacy. Um, I wanted to call you guys back because I wanted to commend you guys for the way you both take the time to come on Anchor and educate people, and you guys work so well together. I mean, <laughs> you guys are really setting the example of how I feel uh, men and women need to start, you know, putting their heads together and come up with solutions on how we need to build for the future. And I just wanted to commend you guys on that and say, keep up the good work. I'm going to really enjoy listening to your station. Be safe. Hope you had a great holiday. Talk to you soon. Peace.